Sin will always take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you're ever willing to pay. Sin is cheap. But its consequences are expensive. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. John's County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So, if you are interested in a confessional Reformed Church plant intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than 3 miles from Interstate 95 and less than 2 miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. Well, let's take our Bibles, and I want us to turn this morning to the book of Acts. The book of Acts in chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. I want to continue this morning our series on the Apostles by looking at the Apostle that replaced Judas, known as the Apostle Matthias. I initially began this series several weeks ago as we were working through the Gospel of Mark, and I wanted to spend one sermon on all the apostles, and of course that didn't occur. We ended up spending seven sermons on the apostles, chronicling their lives. Um, But then as I came to the end of that, I thought it would be somewhat incomplete if we didn't discuss the other two apostles in Scripture, because I... As I studied this, I realized that this really sheds a lot of light on the significance of Jesus choosing 12 apostles and the apostles being the foundation of the church. So we, uh, we want to spend at least two more Sundays. We'll talk about Matthias this morning, and then, Lord willing, next week we will talk about the great apostle Paul. We want to begin with Matthias. Here in Acts chapter 1, the context is that Christ has been raised from the dead. He has ascended. To heaven, so all is good and all is right in that sense. But he has set the, uh, sent the apostles, excuse me, to return to Jerusalem to wait for the sending of the Holy Spirit. Sending of the Holy Spirit would empower the apostles to preach the gospel so that the kingdom of God would be expanded. And I want to pick up in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Please stand to your feet in honor of the reading of God's word. 
Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus sent his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. It becomes, I think, immediately apparent that as the apostles returned to Jerusalem, that the foundation stone of Judas had become cracked and therefore had become useless. It needed replaced. We have been speaking about the apostles, and in speaking about the apostles over the last several weeks, we have been very honest about their glaring uh, failures, their flaws. But here we see the apostles moving from their desertion and failure to their restoration and faithfulness. We see them serious about advancing Christ's kingdom, that the work of the building of the church. Remember Jesus said, I will build the church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. They are now taking Jesus at His word, and they want to continue the building of this church. As Jesus went upward to heaven, the eleven must move onward on earth, carrying on the mission of the Messiah to advance His gospel and His kingdom in the world. And that's exactly what they do from this point forward. There is no selfish ambition and seeking of individual accolades. There's only working together. They finally get it. They finally understand that working together collectively is far more effective than working individually. They have faced their failures head on. Peter, beginning with that, who failed the most, denying the Lord three times, failing the most other than Judas... But here we see them facing their sin, and we see them overcoming that by God's grace. Pride turns to humility, ambition turns to unity. But the greatest failure of all needed resolved, and this is the earliest crisis of the church. Judas was the cracked foundation stone 
that needed replaced. As the end of verse 26 says, the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. That's significant because that is Luke's way of telling us he is numbered with the 11 in order to make 11 plus 1, 12. The number 12, as Calvin says, is a holy number. It's a significant number. We have already noted the fact that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the Old Testament prophets. Christ is the cornerstone, Ephesians 2, verses 19 and following. Significant, therefore, that this cracked foundation stone be replaced, that the number 12 be restored. The church is built into maturity once the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost on the foundation of the 12 as the representatives of the true Israel. The 12 apostles correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel. They constitute, therefore, the restored Israel of God, the true Israel of God. You say, well, did the church exist in the Old Testament? Of course the church existed in the Old Testament, but the church in the Old Testament existed in embryonic form. Once the Holy Spirit comes, that is the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. The Messiah's long-awaited kingdom comes in full power, it begins to expand in the world because now Christ has ascended, He sends forth the Spirit, the apostles preach the gospel, and His kingdom is spread in the world as the gospel is preached into the world as we await the final consummation of the kingdom. But before the church can be birthed out of its embryonic state, the circle of the apostles needs to be restored. The foundation stone that's been cracked needs to be removed officially and replaced quickly. And that's what we find here in Acts 1, verses 12 through 26. In these verses, what we find is the Holy Spirit, through Luke as he writes, revealing the selection of Matthias to replace Judas Iscariot. Now, we cannot in detail go through this passage this morning. We're going to go pretty quickly. But I want you in one sermon to see everything that takes place Because in discussing Matthias, which we know precious little of, we are really discussing the significance of the apostles, therefore the significance of the church, how the church was formed, and God's plan for the church, with many practical exhortations that flow from this text. And I hope that you'll be able to see those as we work through it. There were... And there are, in this passage, three factors, three important factors that led to Matthias' selection as the apostle that would replace Judas. First of all, we see in verses 12 through 14, the first factor was a scheduled service. A scheduled service. Notice in verse 12, it says, Then they, that is the apostles, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. That would be the Mount of Olives. That was located east of Jerusalem, opposite side of the Kidron Valley, a mountain that overlooked the temple specifically, raising almost 3,000 feet. That's where Jesus had just ascended with the angels accompanying that. The eleven returned from where Christ ascended back to Jerusalem, back to home base, we could say. And verse 12 says, It was near Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives was, and was about a Sabbath day's journey away. That would have been less than one mile from the Mount of Olives where Jesus ascended 
to Jerusalem. And when they come to Jerusalem, the first thing that they do is they schedule a meeting in the upper room within the city limits of Jerusalem. Verse 13, look at it. When they had entered, that is Jerusalem, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. This was a matter of obedience because if you skip back to Acts 1 and verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. What is the promise of the Father? The promise of the Father was verse 8, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and then finally to the end of the earth. So the focus of the ascension was the angels and the glory accompanying them. But back in Jerusalem, the focus is the apostles and the duty that accompanies them. Christ's ascension in practical terms was not so much the glory of their experience, but the test of their obedience. Here is a twofold mandate. Remain in Jerusalem, verse 4, so that once the Holy Spirit is sent, verse 8, you will have power to go into the world for the church to be built through the preaching of the gospel. Interestingly, they come to the upper room, which could be the exact location as the one in which our Lord shared the Passover meal with the disciples, instituted the Lord's Supper, and said that by this blood He would seal the new covenant. I think that's significant because we're transitioning from the old covenant to the new covenant, from the embryonic church to the birth of the church. They go right to that labor room of the upper room where we see the beginnings of the church. This would have been the third floor of a house reached by outside stairs, often used for a dining room for many people, which the disciples used on the night of the Passover, and also used, interestingly, as a place for students to study. They are going to study the Word of God. They are going to beseech the Lord in prayer. And that is exactly what we read They were staying there, Peter and John and James and Andrew, verse 13, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. So that's the 11 remaining. And verse 14 says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Altogether, we read uh, in verse 15, there were 120. But there is the 11 There's these women, there's the brothers of Jesus, there's Mary. The word women there in verse 14 is the Greek word gune. It could also be translated as wives. And so I believe that these are the wives of the apostles who are present. I also think it includes the women who accompanied Jesus' earthly ministry. Women like Mary Magdalene and Joanna, we read about these women Some of the women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, Luke 8 tells us, who provided for them out of their means. So some of the women that provided financially for Jesus' ministry is still hanging in there with the apostles, along with the apostles' wives, the women that prepared our Lord's body. Those women that reported back to the apostles the resurrection of our Lord, they are there together with the apostles. These women are not apostles, but they are disciples of Christ. 
We know from 1 Corinthians 9.5 that Peter and the other apostles had wives. They had gune, and so they are there with their families, with their children, with their wives, beseeching the Lord. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there, as verse 14 says. And notice there that the others are not praying to her. She is praying with them. She is one of the 120. And notice it's Jesus' brothers who are there, verse 14 says. The natural offspring of Joseph and Mary, the half-brothers of Jesus. John 7, 5 says they were unbelieving At one point, now they had become believers, they had converted, and they're joining with the apostles to submit to their leadership. They're listed in Matthew and Mark's Gospels, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. 1 Corinthians 15.7 mentions James that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection privately. This is the same James that wrote the epistle of James in the New Testament. And uh, Judas would be the writer of the book of Jude. These are the ones who are present. But what I want you to take special note of is not who was present, but what they did. Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. What were they praying for? Well, obviously, they were praying for what was promised, and what was promised was the sending of the Holy Spirit. They were waiting on the one hand for the Spirit to come, and they were praying for the Spirit to come on the other hand, waiting and praying. Some ten days probably elapsed before the Spirit actually came. They did not stay in that upper room as an upper room to live in. These were not living arrangements. These were meeting arrangements so that probably day by day they would return with their families to be with the apostles, to be with these women, wives and children. Some of the 70 disciples that Jesus sent out, most assuredly they were there. But remember, Jesus appeared, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, to 500. So this group is the nucleus of the church. These are the serious ones who have gathered together. And what do they do? Really not much of anything. We don't read anything here about anyone being saved. We don't read anything about some major ministry project planned. There's no strategy session on how to fulfill the Great Commission because Jesus told them, it's not done in your power. Go back and wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And that's what they do. You know, sometimes waiting on the Lord is the most holy and obedient thing we could possibly do. If we don't learn to be patient for God's will and wait, He'll teach us to be patient by forcing us, commanding us to wait. I think this is a testimony to the apostles' turnaround, their faith in the Lord. Instead of trying to move forward beyond the Spirit, they are submitting to the Spirit. They're submitting to Jesus, not operating out of their flesh. The others are part of this group submitting to their leadership. They would wait. They would pray for Pentecost to come when the full measure of the Holy Spirit would be poured out, the embryonic church would transition from the old covenant to the new covenant that Jesus sealed with His own blood. The church would be birthed, the Spirit poured out, the gospel preached, they would go to the ends of the earth to spread the gospel. It's a reminder to us of Jesus' parables that the kingdom is like a mustard seed that starts small and it grows. It's like leaven. It starts with a little and it leavens the whole lump. The church is to be a church of patience. A local church must be a church of patience, waiting and praying. Sometimes 
Waiting and praying is the most obedient posture of a Christian, not doing anything spectacular, but just being together with God's people, committed to one another, committed to the Lord, beseeching the Lord, studying the Word of God, which is exactly what they are doing here, as we will see. And one other thing I'd like to say is that the promises of God, which were made here to the eleven, the promises of God don't prevent prayer, they promote it. They heard from the very lips of Christ that the promise of the Holy Spirit would come. All they have to do is go and wait. But they don't wait apathetically, do they? Because the promises of God don't prevent prayer, they promote prayer. When you know what God has promised, that's what you pray for. They prayed for what was promised. How much more so should the church in her maturity be a church of prayer? Here is the church in her infancy praying so too must we be, as verse 14 says, devoted to prayer. In fact, that's the same word that is used in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And again, in Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, same word, we will devote ourselves, the apostles say, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Paul obviously would use that same sort of language when he, he wrote to the church who was a little bit more mature, Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly or devotedly, same Greek word, in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And 1 Thessalonians 5.17, all the places that Paul says, pray without ceasing. It was Calvin who said that prayer is not a sign of doubting, but it is a witness to our certain hope and confidence since we ask the Lord for things we know that He has promised us. That's what's happening here. Interestingly, the church is copying exactly what Jesus did. We read in Luke 3.21 that as Jesus waited for the Spirit of God to descend upon Him like a dove, He was praying. Here the church, the body of Christ, is waiting for the Spirit of God to be poured out in full measure, and they are praying. Prayer is a sign of faith. It's a sign of faith. How often do we act before we pray? The early church prayed before they acted. A reliance upon God. The church needs reminded of this. The time the church spends in prayer, privately and corporately, seems to be a thing of the past. The early church waited and prayed, trusting in God. They couldn't move ahead of the Spirit of God, nor would they try to move ahead of the Spirit of God. But one thing they could do, and here's another practical nugget of truth, is when we wait and when we pray, that doesn't mean that we don't do anything. Because they begin to move to replace Judas with another apostle. There are three factors Involved in the selection of Matthias. The first involves a scheduled service, verses 12 through 14, but now we move number two to a scriptural sermon, verses 15 through 22. Because one of the things that became apparently and perhaps glaringly obvious to the apostles and the others in the upper room was that the whole foundation of the church was cracked because of one stone. They could not move ahead of the Spirit. They could not manipulate when the Spirit came and when God worked, but what they could do was what they could do in their own power, and by piecing together the theology of the Old Testament 
And by the help of the Holy Spirit, they understood the significance of having twelve apostles. And it's Peter who becomes the great leader here. He stands in the gap in order to fill the gap left by Judas. Verse 15 says, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. Here Peter stands. Let me just say he stands physically to preach. Because preachers stand with conviction, they don't sit with compromise. He not only stands physically, he's standing figuratively upon the Word of God, which means he's standing authoritatively upon the Word of God, which means he's standing convictionally upon the Word of God, which means he's he's standing decisively on the Word of God. He says in verse 16, Scripture had to be fulfilled. He says in verse 20, For it is written. He is standing physically and he is standing figuratively on the authority of the Word of God and he is demanding that the congregation hear his words. Because they're not really his words, they're God's words. Again, the company of 120, where were the 500 that Jesus appeared to? We don't know. But here the 11 appear to be marking out those serious about being committed to the Lord. Perhaps even an argument could be made for church membership here, at least in principle, because there is clearly a defined group of 120 being isolated from everyone else. Interestingly, Jewish law required 10 males to form a synagogue, and really you needed about 120 people altogether. You needed one elder for every 10 men in the congregation. One member of an, el- of an elder board for every 10 males. So the 12 apostles see that uh, there's not 12, there's only 11. We need to add a 12th one to provide some sort of leadership base for the 120 to establish a new community that will be separate from the synagogue. We begin to see here that from the ashes of the 12 tribes, from the ashes of apostate Israel, comes the 11 apostles plus one, the 12 apostles forming the restored Israel. They're now down to 11. They need a 12th one to form this new community, which is the church. Now, the apostles are not the same as elders. The synagogue is not the same as the church. But I point all of that out to you to show you that the early church operated according to the formal processes and procedures of the synagogue. They weren't operating according to their whims and fancies. Matthew Henry in his commentary says this, and I quote, Jesus picked 12 apostles with an eye to the 12 tribes of Israel descended from 12 patriarchs. They were the 12 stars that make up the church's crown, Revelation 12.1, and they are the 12 thrones upon which Jesus would designate them. That's exactly what Jesus says. If you just turn back with me to Matthew chapter 19, Jesus was explicitly clear about this to the 12. Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, in the new community, in the new age, when the Spirit is poured out, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, He just did that, Acts chapter 1, He ascended. Jesus says, You will have followed Me and will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That is what is taking place here. There is a judgment on the 12 tribes of Israel. 
A new community needs form because Israel is apostate. New leadership needs to take the place of the old leadership because guess what? The old leadership of the religious leaders just crucified the Messiah. They have disqualified themselves from the ministry. And so Peter says, I'm going to stand up and tell you what we must do based upon the authority of what I know from the Word of God. Jesus wants this. Peter came the closest to deserting our Lord more than any of the twelve permanently other than Judas. And how can this man now stand up and preach like this? Well, Jesus had prayed for him. In Luke chapter 22, we read about this. Jesus has just said in Luke 22 verse 30 that they would eat and drink at His table in His kingdom, sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then He says in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now watch this. And when you have turned again, when you have repented, you will strengthen your brothers. Jesus prayed for the Apostle Peter. And now this prophecy and this prayer is being fulfilled as Peter stands up to strengthen the brothers in the upper room to feed the sheep. You remember when Peter was restored, Jesus said... Feed my sheep. Let me just say this. Preaching only comes with power through the uplifted prayers of the sheep. The shepherd prayed for Peter. The sheep pray for non-apostle preachers. The apostles see Christ go high. He ascends. They go to the upper room. They go low on their knees. Peter stands high on the Scriptures to preach. He is strengthened by the prayers of Jesus and now He in turn through His sermon will strengthen the brothers. He is anchoring Himself to the Scriptures alone. He begins to steer the ship of the church through His preaching. And let me just say, that is always what steers the church. It's the rudder of the Word of God through preaching. Peter's argument to the church only works because he's tethered to the authority of the Scriptures. He doesn't invent some new method. He sticks to the old tried and true. He stands before them and he says, obedience to the Scriptures is necessary. Trust in their power. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. And he is adamant. Verse 16, he says, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. Had to be fulfilled. Specifically concerning replacing Judas. And so in this scripturally saturated sermon... Peter not only argues why it's necessary to replace Judas, but how it's to be done. This is not a lecture, and this is not a pep talk. A lecture would just be an explanation. A pep talk would just be application. No, this is not a speech. This is a sermon. This has doctrine followed by duty. This has one's belief followed by behavior. This has theological explanation followed by practical exhortation. Peter doesn't want to stand on the authority of God's Word and then when he's done, have the people sit on their hands and do nothing. All proper expositional sermons 
have theological explanation and practical exhortation. And not only that, they show proper hermeneutics. How do you study the Bible? Peter shows them how to study their Bible. It's a Bible study. He has two primary verses, both from the Psalms. So as they pray in the upper room, now it's time to preach. This is not merely theological curiosity. This is a matter of meeting practical crisis, right? Their friend, Jesus' friend, had just betrayed them. This is a serious matter. This touched upon the depth of their hearts, not only concerning Judas's very soul, but concerning the longevity of the church, their obedience to the Lord, the expansion of the kingdom of God. There's no time for a pep talk. There's no time for a lecture. This is the time for a sermon where Peter stands physically and Peter stands figuratively on the Word of God and says, Thus saith the Lord, and we won't depart. I have a commentary in my office written by Dr. Derek Thomas. And uh, it's on the book of Acts. He was a professor of preaching of mine, and, and uh, I had forgotten, but as I opened the commentary, I saw that he had personalized a signed copy of this commentary. And uh, he had um, some verses written in there. Psalm 20, verses 1 and 2. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May He send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Scriptures always provide the answer, don't they? And prayer always provides the power. Peter is taking them to Zion to hear from God. And so he gives a verse-by-verse exposition of the Psalms. He says, notice verse 16, The Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before him by the mouth of David, specifically concerning Judas. Peter would later explicitly say that the Scriptures are inspired by God. Right? Knowing this, first of all, 2 Peter 1.20, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. By using the mouth of man, the message of God comes forth through inspiration. But specifically, it's the Psalms of David that he's going to exposit. And the topic is clear. Every good sermon has a proposition. Here's the proposition. I'm going to preach to you from the Psalms about how Judas needs to be replaced and how we're going to do that. Because he says there in verse 16, I'm going to speak what David said from his mouth concerning Judas, and then he describes Judas as one who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So now he's identifying Judas's place in committing the high treason of betrayal. He was a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He became a guide. That is because he started off well, he ended badly. He was a guide privately and publicly. Privately, he agreed to 30 pieces of silver when no one knew it, but he and the religious leaders. And publicly, he was a guide because he literally led them to the garden and told them, the one I kiss, that's the one you need to seize. Notice how Peter is so convictional. He says the Scripture has to be fulfilled concerning Judas. And then down in verse 21, 
he says one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. It's the same Greek word, day. It means necessary. This is necessary that we look to the Scriptures. This is necessary that we follow the Scriptures. This is necessary that we find our solution in the Scriptures. He's tethered to the Scriptures. And verse 17 continues the topic of his sermon rooted in Scripture concerning Judas's betrayal. He says, For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Numbered among us, again signifying he was one of the twelve. He was numbered with the twelve. He was selected by Jesus. In Luke chapter 6, we see one account of this selection. Verse 12, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, Jesus did, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Jesus prayed before He selected the twelve. The church has now prayed before they select the twelfth one to replace Judas. Luke 6.16 says in the listing of the apostles after Jesus calls them, Oh, and there was Judas who became a traitor. And here in Acts 2, verse um, 16, it says, He became a guide. Judas started off well. He ended badly. The selection of Matthias to replace this traitor came on the heels of prayer just like Jesus' selection of the twelve came on the heels of prayer. And I just want to stop and say, what profit is it to be numbered or counted among the church physically if you're not part of the church spiritually? There are always Judases on every church roll. Peter knows that. Peter faces that head on. Calling out the perpetrator. Calling out the sinner as a public example. He was already excommunicated from the upper room. The next time they're in the upper room, he's not there. He's been set out. He was numbered among us, but not anymore. And verse 17, he was allotted his share in the ministry. A reminder to us that even elders can be disqualified. Pastors, deacons. Nothing worse in ministry than betrayal. Jesus quoted Psalm 41.9 in the upper room. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That's what happened. That's what these apostles were facing. This sermon is not theological curiosity. It's a matter of practical consideration on how this could happen. How could this happen? Well, Peter would later say this. Men of Israel, Acts 2.22, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, As you yourselves know, this Jesus, verse 23, listen to this, delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Why are we worried about this? God determined this. But Judas was responsible, verse 23, Peter says, you crucified, Israel did, and killed by the hands of lawless men, led by the guide, led by the traitor. 
Judas was culpable, but all of this was predetermined. You see what Peter's doing here. He's comforting the 120 in the upper room with God's sovereignty. Rather than threatening them with God's sovereignty, he's comforting them. He's saying there's an answer in the Scriptures from the Psalms as to why Judas did this. Judas is still responsible. As Calvin says in his commentary, Judas is responsible. He wasn't compelled by the prophecy to betray our Lord. He was compelled by the malice of his own heart. He's responsible. And yet, doesn't it strike fear? And there is a measure of fear we ought to place ourselves in front of this morning that one numbered among the company of Jesus deserted him. This had to be fulfilled. As verse 16 says, this is exactly what was to take place. Now notice verses 18 and 19. This is parenthetical. In other words, this is Luke giving an aside. Because Luke is writing to a largely Gentile readership, and they may not know the details of this. So here is a graphic illustration of what happened to Judas. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. That's talking about Judas. If you turn with me back to Matthew 27, we, Matthew gives a, a much uh, deeper explanation of this. Matthew chapter 27. Why did he buy a field? How did he buy a field? What, what, is, what's ta- what is he talking about here? Matthew 27, verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Notice a change of mind is not the same thing as a change of heart. He changed his mind. Worldly remorse, not repentance. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See it to yourself. You've got your own set of problems. Go deal with it however you want to deal with it. Not our problem. So he did. Verse 5, he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple. He departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by Jeremiah, saying, And they took thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. They gave him, gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed them again. Everything predetermined by God. Everything rooted in sacred Scripture. So Luke says that Judas acquired the field. Matthew says the chief priest acquired the field. Which is it? Well, there's no contradiction. These are two different perspectives. One by Luke and Acts, one by Matthew here. Luke describes Judas as buying the field because it was his reward money that bought the field. The reward of his wickedness, as Luke describes it here, which was considered blood money, as Matthew says. The chief priests refused to accept that money back. After collecting it off the temple floor, they conferred together, and they decided to purchase a field so that Judas purchased that field by proxy because it was Judas's money, and the priest wanted nothing to do with it. Judas didn't purchase the field while he was alive, with the reward of his wickedness, but he did eventually do so after his death through the chief priests. 
Judas never enjoyed that field, nor did he possess it. But I will tell you this, that field possessed him. The soil of that field soaked up his blood. Luke, the physician, graphically describes this in verse 18. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Little reminder. Sin will always take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you're ever willing to pay. Sin is cheap. But its consequences are expensive. Here he is shamed. He leaves out here, Luke does, the portion that Matthew provides, which Matthew said in Matthew 27.5 that he hanged himself. Apparently the rope snapped. He fell, maybe hit something jagged like a rock. His body cavity burst open, split open, so that his bowels, his intestines, his splachna were exposed. By the way, the word bowels, you're familiar with this? That was used in the first century to describe the seed of one's emotions. Like we say we love someone with our whole heart. You would say you love someone with your bowels, something Judas hardly did toward Christ. Here he strangles himself physically because, listen to this, he strangled emotionally, but this is not spiritual sorrow. This is worldly remorse, not heavenly repentance. He wants to quiet his conscience, right? Which doesn't work because once he hangs himself and breathes his last, he enters a Christless eternity in hell in which his conscience is bothering him to this day. His bows toward Christ... They were never genuinely shown. It was hypocritical to give Jesus a kiss. He never loved Jesus from his bowels. He never exposed his bowels to Jesus, but now God, in an act of shame, will expose his bowels to the world. And that's what happens. John Flavel, speaking of Judas's suicide, says, and I quote, He that hath no bowels for Christ hath none now for himself. And verse 19 says, It became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Ekeldama, that is the field of blood. Again, Gentile readership, maybe they weren't familiar with this. He's explaining Luke's this tragedy. But now let's go back to Peter's sermon because in verse 20, he finally gets to his text. He set up his proposition Determine the theological import and significance of this. Now he uses two scriptures. Psalm 69, verse 25. Psalm 109, verse 8. And notice how he begins it. For it is written. That's a way to introduce the scriptures, right? A way for him to show that they come from God's authority, not his own. So he quotes here Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm that speaks about the suffering of Jesus Christ. Other than Psalm 22, Psalm 69 is quoted more than any other psalm in the New Testament. Jesus quotes Psalm 69.9, Zeal for your house consumes me. In John chapter 2, when he cleaned the temple out, Paul quotes Psalm 69. I believe it is in Romans 15.3 when he speaks about reproaches falling on him. Here Peter quotes Psalm 69, listen to this, applying it to Christ from the life of David. 
So notice it, for it is written in the book of Psalms, Psalm 69, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Now, not every verse is to be taken messianically. We need the help of the writers of the New Testament. But Peter here shows us proper hermeneutics. That is the science of studying Scripture. And he tells us that what was true in the life of David, Psalm 69, surrounded by his enemies, was true in the life of Christ. David prefigured Christ. So that the curses that fell on David's enemies are now applied to curses upon the greatest enemy of God, Judas. The enemies of David find their fulfillment in one man, Judas. So in Psalm 69, it's in the plural. It's in the plural, their camp, and no one to dwell in theirs. But in, in Acts, 2, Acts 1, verse 20, it's in the singular, his camp, no one will dwell in it. Referring to one man, that is Judas. Now, I, I want to say on a side note that Peter here is both speaking under the authority of inspiration as well as the authority of illumination in order to give the ultimate interpretation so that it will lead to the right application. You came here thinking you were going to hear a sermon about Matthias. We're not even close to that yet because it takes some time to explain what is going on. The application will come, but Peter is giving to us the illumination rooted in inspiration, the interpretation, the exposition, the application will come later. What is the application? May his camp become desolate and there will be no one to dwell in it. Judas' name, his family, his homestead, his camp, his heritage will be left empty. His foundation stone of a spiritual inheritance, inheritance and heritage will be void. His stone will be removed. Why? Because it's cracked. It's useless. It can't be built upon. His sandals need filled. He, he needs another sworn into office. That's what Psalm 69 is teaching. And you wouldn't know that if a sermon wasn't preached by Peter. Peter wouldn't know that unless he was speaking under inspiration of the Holy Spirit and illumination of the Holy Spirit. And it wouldn't be understood unless he gave an exposition. But Peter tells us Judas needs replaced. Calvin says this, and I quote, For when Christ said that the apostles should be judges of the twelve tribes of Israel, he showed here that it was done of set purpose that they might gather together the tribes of Israel unto one faith, but after that the Jews refused the grace offered unto them. It was behoveful that the Israel of God should be gathered out of all countries. This, therefore, was a holy number, the number twelve, which if it should have been diminished through the wickedness of Judas, then should the preaching of the gospel both have had and also had have less credit at this day if the beginning thereof had been imperfect. This is a building inspection. There's a crack in the stone. If we don't replace it, we lose credibility. Jesus said he would build the church. We are the apostles. We are the foundation. We have to find a replacement. We can't just pick one. We have to follow the scriptures. So that's what Peter does. 
Judas went away from the twelve so that the work of Christ could go on, so that he would be replaced. That's Psalm 69. His camp would become desolate. No heir, no dwelling, no one to perpetuate the likes of Judas. And then at the end of verse 20, notice that he quotes Psalm 109 in verse 8. He says, and, here's my other point, let another take his office. So Judas would have no heirs, nobody in his tents, but his office would be filled. In fact, turn back to Psalm 109 just for a moment, just briefly. Psalm 109. He's quoting here verse 8. Verse 8 says, May his days be few, may another take his office. Judas's days were cut short, were they not? His ministry days were cut short. His life was cut short. But verse 7 says, When he is tried, let him come forth guilty, and let his prayer be counted as sin. What? Let his prayer be counted as sin? What sort of prayer did Judas pray? May I suggest that when he went into the temple and he said to the chief priests, I have sinned. That was just as hypocritical as the kiss that he gave Jesus. It wasn't a prayer Jesus heard because it may have been filled with some level of remorse, but no repentance. That's why the Bible calls Judas in John 17 the son of perdition. To say this, there is no one who has ever existed in the history of the world who has ever been saved by reciting the sinner's prayer. No prayer has ever saved anyone. Christ saves people. Now you may pray to express your sin and to forsake it and to repent of it and to express your faith in Christ, but it's not the prayer that saves you. Christ that saves you. Judas prayed a sinner's prayer. It was rejected. It was counted as sin, Psalm 109. So hopefully you can see, and I think the congregation of the 120 could see, that just as the tree of the church is not going to go away with the apostasy of Israel, new branches will be grafted in, Romans 11. The, the foundation's not going to go away. One's delinquent, it's cracked, get it out of here, replace it. This is the work of Christ. He's the one in charge. He's the one building His church. It's not up to one individual. A failure cannot thwart the purposes of God to expand His kingdom. Many today hold a grudge against the office of pastor because of people like Judas. Because of immoral pastors that don't have integrity. It's not the fault of the office, it's the fault of the man. The office of apostle remains. God has sanctioned the office of elder, the office of pastor-teacher. It's the fault of man, not the fault of the office. And that's what Peter's expressing here. Don't let this whole thing be flushed down the drain because one guy screwed up royally. He's gone. He's out of here. He's going to get what he deserves. Get rid of the stone. Replace it. Let's move on. Verse 20. 
Let another take his office. Just one more thing about this. That word another, heteros, it denotes another of a different kind. And I say that because alas is another Greek word which means another of the same kind. Judas is not another of the... The replacement of Judas is not another of the same kind. Alas, it is another of a different kind. Heteros. Completely different. What are the qualifications? Let's see what they are. Let's pick someone different than Judas. So Peter's sermon really has three parts, doesn't it? The proposition rooted in Scripture, verses 15 through 19. The exposition, verse 20 of these Psalms. Now the application... Verse 21, so, every sermon must end with that, so. What's the point of this? So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, he's still preaching, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. This is application. I've told you what the Word of God says from the authority of God. Now here's what we need to do about it. Two qualifications. First of all, this person has to be trained with Jesus and had to have walked with Jesus. And secondly, been a witness of His resurrection. Verse 21 gives the first qualification based on Scripture. One of them who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. That is, all three years. The duration beginning, as verse 22 says, from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. That is the ascension. From the beginning point of John the Baptist's ministry, when Jesus came on the scene and began to preach, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Those that followed him, those that walked with him, didn't just have to be the twelve, part of the seventy from this group would be one chosen. First qualification, with Jesus, the duration of his ministry. Second qualification, the end of verse 22, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Resurrection, always a central tenet of the Christian faith. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? If the resurrection isn't true, your faith is futile. If the resurrection isn't true, you're still in your sins. If the resurrection isn't true, you are most to be pitied. So the apostle Peter determines, perhaps... Because Jesus told him, we don't know. It's got to be someone who has seen the resurrected Christ. But narrows it down. There were 500 that saw him. They're not there. Where are they? They missed church this day. All right, so uh, we can't pick the women because women can't be apostles. That's obvious. They can't serve in leadership. Can't pick the children. Well, there were 72 that Jesus sent out. So it was one of these. This selection of Matthias was methodical, wasn't it? Several factors. It involved the scheduled service. They gathered together. It involved the scriptural sermon where Peter stood up. And all of it resulted in number three, a sovereign selection. A selected or scheduled service, a scriptural sermon, a sovereign selection. Verses 23 through 26. Assuming the apostles were leading... As the representatives of the assembly, they chose two of the 72, as verse 23 says, and put forward Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Joseph, uh, his Latin name is Justice. 
He's listed first because he's probably, in their eyes, the most likely candidate. But God always does what is most unlikely. He's not the one chosen. But he's listed first. He's the most well-known. We know more about him than we do Matthias. And even he's not mentioned that much in Scripture. He is Joseph Barsabbas. That could mean son of Sabbath, or it could be son of the Sabbath, which could be... um, a way of saying that he was a church boy, he was a son of the church, had good pedigree. His brother is mentioned in Acts 15.22, Judas Barsabbas. So I think he came from a, a family that was religious. He had good character. He knew what this was about. The most likely candidate. And then Matthias. That's a shortened form of Mattathias which means gift of Yahweh. The selection would come as a gift from Yahweh, sovereignly. How do I know that? Because they don't turn to themselves, they turn to the Lord. Notice again the component of prayer, verse 24, and they prayed. And they said, you, Lord who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. That word Lord refers to Jesus. In Acts 15.8, it talks about God. God who knows all hearts. So here you have a verse affirming the deity of Jesus. They're looking to Jesus, the Lord, God. They've heard the sermon. They've recognized the qualifications. But now they're saying, Lord, just as you prayed before you chose the original 12, we're praying to you to select this 12th one to replace Judas. Their prayer is fervent. Show which one of these two you have chosen. You have chosen. Verse 25, to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. He left and took his place and sided with Satan. We want someone of a different kind, Lord. You know these men's hearts. So know what they do after they pray. They act. Did you hear that? They act. Well, I'm still praying about it. It's been 26 years. They act. Verse 26. They cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, from our perspective, casting lots seems infantile and childish. We are Calvinists, after all. Seems rather Arminian. But prior to Pentecost... The full measure of the Spirit being poured out is predicted in the Old Testament by the prophets. Before the canon of Scripture was complete, the church was infantile and childish. The church was in its embryonic state in the Old Testament. That's why Paul could say there were childish things about the Old Testament. He even refers to the law of God as our tutor to lead us to Christ. There were things about the old covenant, covenant economy that were embryonic, 
The life of the church existed, but the full measure of the Spirit had not been poured out, even though the Spirit was present. The church is in this transitional state of full-term pregnancy. And so the apostles are well within their rights to cast lots. Number one, because they didn't just do it whimsically. They've prayed. They've preached a sermon. They've argued rationally from the Scriptures about why this must be done. They had the support of Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. They have prayed. You don't pray unless you have an eye toward providence. This is not superstitious ritual. This is a sovereign ritual, the outcome of which proves God's providence. That's how it took place in the Old Testament. In fact, the phraseology there used, they cast lots for them, the word used is, is, comes from three Greek words, soon, which means with, kata, which means down, and, and um, sethos, which means to cast down a stone. Sethos meaning stone or pebble. That's what people in the Old Testament did, specifically the high priest. He did use the urim and thummim, You've read about that in the Bible a number of different times. The priest had made for him a breastplate. They called it the breastplate of judgment. One of the reasons for that is that it was folded, doubled over, it wasn't stitched at the top very likely, so that he could put the stones, the Urim and Thummim in there. He would pull those out, he would cast them, and whatever they came up as, the symbol on them signifying yes or no, would be a manifestation of the providence of God. You see this happen when Joshua succeeds Moses. You see Eliezer the priest use these. You see Saul, who when he couldn't get an answer from dreams or prophets or the stones, he went to the witch in Dora. So it's some sort of stones or gems that identify God's will. That was with the high priest. There is no high priest here. So these are likely stones that are cast to discover a divine decision. The point is, the decision wasn't that of the apostles. It was that of the Lord. After Pentecost, the practice of casting lots ceased. Once the canon of Scripture came, and there is no apostolic succession once the canon of Scripture came. A lot of answers have been given. We don't need any more stones. We have the full measure of the Spirit of God. But they're not there yet. And so this is more within their right. In fact, I would make the argument to say this is biblical. And that's what they do. And they chose Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. He was chosen, Matthias was, we never hear from him again. We know nothing about him. Perhaps a mistitled sermon. Sermon's not really about Matthias, is it? The sermon is about the church. It's about the church. To tell us that, to begin with, evangelism is done only in the power of the Spirit. Church was birthed out of its embryonic state once the Holy Spirit came. We have the full measure measure of the Spirit. 
We don't need the techniques and the methods and the manipulation of men. We have the Spirit of God, which comes through the preaching of the Word of God, which means, secondly, the church needs to elevate the preaching of the Word of God. It was the preaching of the Word of God turning to the Scriptures which helped the church resolve its earliest crisis in replacing Judas. It was the church looking to the leadership of the apostles through the preaching that would determine what they did. Matthias replacing Judas also teaches us that apostolic authority is found in sola scriptura. With the death of the apostles, there's no more apostolic succession. It doesn't matter what people say. People can call themselves any title they want to call themselves. And they can use gymnastics all they want about the Greek word apostolos and the different contexts that it's used in. I've heard all of those arguments. But when you understand the significance of 12 and you understand the apostles' purposely replacing Judas with Matthias, and they never named another apostle, even after James dies just a few pages later, proves there is no apostolic succession. If there was, they would have named another apostle to replace James. They didn't. So don't give me Greek arguments. (laughs) I know know just as much, much Greek as the next guy. There are no apostles today. I also think this teaches us optimism regarding the growth of the kingdom. Here's Pentecost. Christ is reigning. They leave. Imagine that. Jesus is resurrected. They see him. Things are great. They're back together. Now he's gone again. They don't go with their tail between their legs. They march to Jerusalem less than a mile away. They go to the upper room and they say, let's get this thing started. Optimistic. Christ is reigning. He's commissioned us. I think this also teaches us the reality of failed, disqualified leadership. should never be surprised when someone's disqualified from leadership. It happens all the time. We can be disappointed, but we shouldn't be surprised. Judas fell. It also teaches us the reality of God-ordained leadership. If leadership has not disqualified themselves, God has placed strictures and structures in place now through elders and pastor-teachers to lead the church. The 120 have no problem submitting to the leadership. This also teaches us how we wait for Christ today. How do we wait for Him? Devoted to the Word of God and devoted to prayer. That's what the church must emphasize. Peter also teaches us how to interpret Scripture. He interprets it in a Christ-centered way, does he not? He is telling us that the events in the life of David point to the life of Christ. I think that is very practical. What did he say to those on the road to Emmaus? So foolish one, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's a Christ-centered approach. A redemptive historical method of interpretation is completely legitimate because Peter operates that way. Christ seen on every page. And it's a reminder to us regarding the fact that if our theology is wrong, our interpretation will be wrong. If our interpretation is wrong, our exposition doesn't matter. And if all of that is wrong, then there won't be application worth following. Peter has the whole package. Inspiration, illumination, exposition, application, all of it. 
when Peter sat down, the congregation stood up to act. That's the power of the preach word, the duty to apply the preach word. Now, with all that being said, there still is a problem that is not resolved. We've been working hard to understand the significance of the 12, right? We saw that all the way back uh, in Mark chapter 3 when we started this. Uh, how many years has it been? Oh, it's, it's only been a few weeks, but... Uh, You know, in Mark chapter 3, before the naming of the apostles, verse 13 says, He went up on the mountain, called to those whom He desired. They came to Him and He appointed the twelve. He appointed the twelve. Twelve is a holy number. Okay, now there's eleven. Now we add Matthias. That's twelve. We're good. Wait a second. What about Paul? I was never good at math, but I think that makes 13. Remember, verse 26, Matthias was numbered with the 11 apostles. Luke's emphasizing 11 plus 1, 12. What about Paul? What about Paul? Well, he refers to himself as one untimely born, but that doesn't explain it. That's like, you know, saying, I'm sorry. What does that mean? The circle of the twelve has been restored. The foundation laid. We're moving forward. There's no room for any more than twelve, right? Well, you'll have to wait till next week to find out. Because <laughs> next week we'll conclude our sermon series on the apostles. And we'll look at the Apostle Paul. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the power of your word, the clarity of your word. Lord, we, we've covered a lot of ground this morning, and one thing is for certain, we, we recognize that if it wasn't for your grace, Lord, we would be deserters of you, betrayers. Lord, it was incumbent upon the early church to choose a replacement because that was your plan. It's not a plan they came up with. It's a plan you revealed to them through Scripture. They applied it. Lord, all of this gives us confidence that what we're doing this morning works. The preaching of the Word works. Prayer works. Gathering together works. Studying the Scriptures work. Exposition works. Your kingdom is being built. You are ruling. You are reigning. You bless. Well, Father, give us wisdom where we're short-sighted. Help us to be more devoted to you. More committed to you more confident in you knowing that, as your son said, he is building the church. We're just instruments. We're just fallible human beings doing what you tell us to do. Help us to do it well to your glory, we pray. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know Christ, maybe a Judas in our midst, maybe um, someone of the likes of those that like to receive the miracles of Christ but not his words, not his message. They've never come to faith and repentance. Lord, help them to see they don't want to be left without a camp. They don't want to have the same fate as Judas. Would your spirit move in the hearts of your elect to draw them to yourself? And 
Lord, may they come and speak with me, speak with someone that they might get clarity on the gospel, clarity on the assurance of the forgiveness of their sins, Lord, so that they're not just numbered among the church roster, the visible church, but they're assured they're among the elect, the invisible church. Lord, we pray you would do a work for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.